Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Explores. I'm Molly Fleming, a reporter for Marketing Week, and this week we'll be discussing how to solve marketing's decreasing reputation and, as news outlets close in their droves, what is the future of media? But first, I'm joined by Charlotte Rogers, a senior writer at Marketing Week, and our editor, Russell Parsons, to discuss the reputation, or lack thereof, of marketing. Most of us know the stat that 80% of CEOs don't trust their marketers, but now brands like Brewdog and Oasis are trashing advertising and calling out in their own campaigns. So what's going on, and how do we solve this impact crisis? To begin, I want to know, Charlotte, why has marketing got a bad reputation? Cambridge Analytica scandal, ad bombardment, influencer fraud, brand safety issues, all of these things have combined to really affect the reputation that marketing has. And I think public perceptions of advertising, and I think that does have an impact on marketing in general, have been in decline for decades. Um, In the early 90s, there was quite a high favourable perception of of advertising, but now just 25% of people have a good impression of advertising according to uh, Ad Association stats. Um, And a recent survey by the Ad Association found that 45% of people are annoyed by the repetition and obtrusiveness of advertising. Um, 35% are irritated by the volume of ads they receive, and 38% criticise ads for not being relevant. So I think when people do um, come into contact with marketing, they often feel like they're just getting messages they don't want to receive. Russell, what do you think about that? Well, I think the problem is twofold in terms of the reputation of marketing. I mean, I've heard all of those statistics about consumer attitudes towards advertising in particular, and the trust that they have in brands. And Charlotte's right to say that this isn't necessarily a new thing. I think what is new, though, in many ways, is the industry itself seems to be falling out of love with what they do. The Brewdog campaign, which in, on one hand is very much in keeping with their sort of rebel outsider status, you know, the stripped down anti advertising. Yeah. Uh, and then there was the Oasis campaign, which, apart from being a total creative abomination, was playing on this assumption, this received wisdom from where I don't know that young people don't like advertising, therefore, the only way to cut through is by give him a little nudge and a wink and saying, we're on your side. We don't really like what we do either. And I think to some degree, you could just call it good positioning, but I think it is, as I say, symptomatic of a falling out of love with what people do. And I think we, the industry as a whole kind of, well, not as a whole, but certainly pockets of the industry just concluded that it just wasn't enough to be good deliver good Mm. products and services you have to be more than that I guess I can I agree with you and I appreciate why consumers feel that way but I don't really understand why marketers are playing into it so much well, yeah, I was going to say, I um, spoke to some of the judges for Marketing Week's top 100 most effective UK marketers, uh, one of which was the Thinkbox CEO, Lindsay Clay. And she said that it's so fashionable in the media now to kind of see marketing as a dirty word. Um, and this, this has sparked a sense of self-consciousness within um, brands, within advertising teams. Obviously, you know, Russell pointed to the likes of Oasis and Brewdog kind of mocking the notion of advertising. And she sort of pointed to the fact, you know, is this element of self-loathing within the industry? But she was like, this is a problem. Um, and she talks about the fact that marketers have a responsibility to, uh, to champion the industry. And actually, we have a responsibility as marketers to be the champions and, you know, flag wavers for, for our industry. So rather than just contributing to the negativity, you know, maybe 
marketers should be thinking, well, how, how can we contribute positively to overcoming some of those misperceptions about marketing? It's interesting what uh, Lindsay was saying there. One of my favorite quotes in marketing, I think, came from a, a blog that Professor Byron Sharp wrote probably a couple of years ago now when he was reacting to brand purpose. And I'm going to terribly uh, paraphrase this, but please forgive me in advance, Byron. He was essentially saying that what marketers do is worthwhile. Uh, you don't need to adopt a wider purpose if you make soap or hygiene products. That in itself has proven enough to make a real and lasting difference to hygiene and to communities in the world. As I say, not quite the quote, but the, the sentiment being uh, that marketing in itself, if you accept it for what it is, isn't necessarily evil and you don't have to respond and react to it accordingly, which is what we're seeing now in this sort of pervading self-loathing in the industry. In terms of marketers internally, I think that's infecting them or this sort of broad sense of uh, of trust or trust problems internally. I mean, I, I don't think marketers are necessarily comfortable in their own skin and, and, and to a degree the rebranding of marketing and new titles, chief growth officer, chief customer officer, customer director, chief values or purpose officer, whatever it is uh, that's been introduced, is just almost symptomatic of marketing running away from itself, trying to be more than it actually is. I think this crisis of confidence in marketing um, is an internal thing and, and how it is perceived within the business. In June, McKinsey released a report that said that only 3% of board members actually come from a marketing background, which means that there's a fundamental gap in understanding um, of, of what marketing really does. And um, when I was speaking to the judges um, of the top 100, um, they were saying that actually the language that marketers use at the board, it's not the first time people have said this, but just the idea that you have to pitch your work as an investment, not a cost, and kind of use the same language um, as the board would use. So don't talk about brand equity, but talk about protecting, sustained profit for the business, reducing risks, increasing um, price elasticity. And also partnering with the CFO um, is a really good idea. So make sure you have the same targets, the same objectives, um, and a sense of shared ownership. I think um, someone that spoke to me as well was ISBAR's Director General Phil Smith and he was kind of talking about the way that there's this problem with the way that marketers define their own scope, importance and impact. So this idea that marketers need to look beyond their remit and kind of work in tandem with the wider organisation, so IT, HR, operations, and kind of understand their work in context. He said that marketers who simply operate within the sphere of marketing comms are the ones at the margin of influence and the C-suite counterparts tend to have lower a lower sense of confidence in them. I guess we've spoken quite broadly about the issue with marketing's reputation and also how to solve it, but if you both had one piece of advice for marketers that they could take forward in their businesses, what would it be? Um, I think confidence, definitely. Be proud of your work, be proud of what you do, be proud of your contribution. Um, obviously, try and reach out to other people in the organisation so that you understand their challenges and what they're working through um, because that might help them understand better what you're doing. Um, and also, don't go out there with a message that is self-conscious because um, you don't need to apologise for yourself. I think I would echo pretty much everything that Charlotte has said. Um, you need to be confident in the job that you do the role that you perform and 
the results that you can generate and the growth that you can generate. And it sounds crazy in 2019 that we have to restate what should be the bleeding obvious, but it seems in many instances, in many organizations, it's worth restating. Unfortunately, I think we're gonna to have to wrap it up there. This is a topic that I know we could all talk about at length and will continue to do so. But for people who want to get more of an insight, I would recommend going on our website, marketingweeks.com and checking out some of Charlotte's pieces on the subject that I know talk more in depthly about this issue. The news that Marie Claire was sadly becoming digital only was announced last week and once again everyone across industries began having that conversation about the future of publishing. There's been a huge string of publications, notably female-led, that are closing or going digital only. So big question, but what is going wrong and how do we fix it? Well, I mean, this year alone there's kind of been, as you say, like a kind of crisis in, in media in general, um, online and offline. Um, the pool folding, Vice Media, BuzzFeed, Verizon, company behind um, Puffington Post, um, all shedding journalism jobs. And it's this kind of eternal question of how do you turn profit? So do you go ad supported? Do you go sponsored content? Is it paywalls? Do you rely on subscriptions? Do you think about donations in the way that The Guardian does? Um, and it's kind of all set against this context of the stranglehold of the digital platforms. So Facebook's ad revenue soared to $16.6 billion um, in the second quarter of this year. That was up 28%. Google's ad revenue rose by 16% year on year to $32.6 billion, again, during the second quarter. And Amazon's just growing. Its advertising business um, grew by 37% to $3 billion. So when you think about where all the ad spend is going online, that's where it's going. This will be a challenge for Marie Claire. If they have, obviously, they're migrating from print to online, how are they going to make this work? Um, Someone who's got a really interesting take on this is Sean Wood, who's publisher of Positive News, which is a constructive journalism website and magazine, um, quarterly magazine, which kind of talks about stories that boost well-being and engage people in society and uncover potential solutions to the world's problems. Um, and he has a really interesting take on the crisis in journalism at the moment. I think there's a bigger context in that there's, um, there's, a, there's also a crisis in the, the culture of journalism and the identity of journalism now. And I think it's out of sync with our times in, in some instances and with what people need and expect. Um, and the, the key thing about that for me, what I mean is that I think what, what media organisations need to do now is think not just about you know the platforms and um, and and the, how they reshape their business models, but actually the purpose of what they're doing. I think what's really interesting about positive news is that they've got a really bespoke business model which works specifically for them. And I think yes, they have a niche. They're talking about constructive, positive stories. Um, but the thing that they've done is they've got this kind of really interesting business model where they have co-owners, subscribers and supporters. Mm -hmm. So they've got a kind of threefold way of sustaining themselves. Um, so in 2015, they became the world's first media organization to sell community shares through crowdfunding. And they raised um, 263,000 pounds in 30 days. So they operate as a community benefit society, which is owned by 1,500 people in 33 com eight countries. And that's where the company directors are elected from. They sit in a separate business to the journalists who are part of a not-for-profit subsidiary, so the co-owners don't affect the editorial agenda. Um, 
They also have a reader revenue model where supporters can make one-off donations, monthly contributions, which start at just a pound. Um, and you can also buy a £30 um, subscription to the quarterly magazine. They also don't have a paywall. So what's interesting is that they want their content to be shared. Their mission is to share their news with as many people as possible. So while they do have this kind of um, funding model, they want to share um, their news as widely as possible. They also work with brands of inspiration partners, which are purpose-led organisations. It's the likes of Simple, uh, Simple Skincare mm. and Gift Gaff. And that's branded content that's paid for by the brand, but the journalists work to a brief where they work with the brand. So, for example, Simple, they work on the topic of kindness and then they write stories around kindness, but it's not about Simple. It's just kind mm. of Simple helps set the editorial agenda for that piece of work. So they've got a really interesting model that is not going to work necessarily for anybody else, but really works for them. And you spoke to other, for your piece, slower media organisations. What about their media models do you think works? Yeah, so Tortoise are really interesting, a slow news site, and they've got this really collaborative membership model. So they, um, <clears throat> they're totally ad-free, and they're built on what they call membership, not subscriptions. Um, they, again, went on, um, on crowdfunding on Kickstarter, and they were the biggest ever um, journalism project to ever appear on Kickstarter. After three months, they were backed by um, 2,500 people, so they already knew they were going to be popular. Um, what they do is they have... A £250 annual membership, which gives readers the access to the app, but it also means they can attend these things called think-ins, and the editorial meeting, the daily editorial meeting of the Tortoise team, is a think-in. So if you're a member, you can literally go into the editorial meeting, hear what all the journalists are talking about, and contribute to shape the content roadmap. Um, so it's all about this kind of collaborative working with the members, and they also, for every investigation that they work on, which can last six months, um, there's a member panel who um, have expertise and experience in that area and they advise, they shape the pieces, they fact check. 60% of the content produced by the 40 Strong Tortoise Media team is from a member suggestion and they want that to be higher. So um, they have this really interesting way of bringing people in on the editorial. What do you think about that, Russell? Well, everything that Charlotte has just said rings really true. I think it, there's this almost sledgehammer uh, view that if a magazine ends, then it's fine. We'll become digital first and we'll succeed online because that's where everybody's consuming information, consuming news, um, consuming lifestyle content in the case of uh, Marie Claire. But it's simply not as, it, it's not as easy as that. I mean, as, as Charlotte mentioned, the, um, the Silicon Valley giants are just hoovering up uh, digital uh, ad revenues so you have to be different. You have to approach both a business model and a purpose as a brand, to use that word again, in a very different way. So you have to mean something to uh, somebody. I think with Marie Claire and a lot of the uh, those kind of consumer titles, those that have been around for a long time, the media, i.e. the magazine, the physical format, was almost part of the brand. It was one of its distinctive assets or the, having the luxury of time to enjoy that magazine was, was part of the experience. So if you take that away, then what you're left with, you're left with Marie Claire the brand. And what does Marie Claire as a brand mean in 2019 when you are up against so much more competition online? So it has to almost redefine its core brand positioning and points of difference, yes, to cut through in a really noisy, crowded space. 
and whether or not that's through the type of content, the type of journalistic campaigns that it's been famous for in the past, I don't know. Otherwise, you've got to almost build a, you know, ring fence yourself and become a, a membership or a community or a subscriptions service. Um, but as I said a moment ago, to do that, you've got to have a very clear sense of self to be able to do it. So it's really not easy. And it, I always roll my eyes every time one of these major brands will go online, digital first, that's where the people are, that's what we're going to do. It's really not as easy as that because there's even more competition. I would just say that um, something that's so crowded as well as sports. So that's what the Athletic are coming in and trying to disrupt. Um, they only launched in August here in the UK, but they are three years old as a startup in the US and Canada. Their model is a subscription model based on no adverts, no pop-ups, and no sponsored content. And their whole philosophy is people want premium content about sport and they're willing to pay for it. They don't want clickbait. They don't want loads of videos interrupting their experience. They want to hear from experts. And they've managed to lure some really big names to come and work for them. Um, in August, they hit 600,000 subscribers and they're hoping to get end this year with a million paying readers. Um, and what they, they have a subscription cost of around 4 99 a month. Um, that's if you have take out an annual package. If you just pay month by month, it's nine ninety nine. But they realise um, they've seen that you know people are paying for Spotify, they're paying for Netflix, Amazon Prime. They believe that this kind of model of, of subscription has legs, um, and they invest all the subscriptions back into hiring more writers. So they currently cover the English Premier League, the Scottish Premier League, and at some Championships clubs. And they have a writer at least one dedicated at each football club. Some, in some cases two or three, and they've also got other people leading on investigations and issues. So if you are a fan of uh, a club like Arsenal, you will get so much dedicated information um, that you maybe can't get elsewhere. Um, what they've done to kind of lure people is they talk about having fairer salaries, working conditions, and full-time staff receive equity in the business, because they believe if you've got skin in the game, you're gonna care more about the profits and um, everything you know being top-notch. Um, Another thing they're doing is they've got a massive podcast offering. So they've currently got 80 podcasts, which are expected to go to 120 by the end of this year. Um, and that's across everything they do in the US and Canada as well. But if you're a British subscriber, you can access all that content anyway. Um, but they're apparently currently experimenting with offering one podcast episode a week to non-subscribers to build the audience. Um, but then if you want to hear the rest, you have to subscribe. It's not, I mean, to go back to the example of Marie Claire and Marie Claire hasn't got a problem with name recognition or brand awareness, but it becomes a challenge or even more of a challenge online of salience. What does it mean? What is it there for? What value can it add over the plethora of different options that people have and through different delivery mechanisms and channels, whether it might be social media or websites, whatever it is. And that's, that's the key challenge that they're going to have to face now uh, and face up to uh, it's not insurmountable we've heard Trish Charlotte and in her piece about people doing things in different ways and the reason that they're having to do things in different ways is to create that salience to to mean something to go that layer deeper to stand out in a very crowded marketplace I think something to finish on is a little bit of hope and one publication that gives me a lot of hope and is doing seemingly very well is Galdem, which is a online magazine and actually in print 
like I said, it is a magazine for women of colour and non-binary people and they are going from strength to strength. And now it has become this incredible, unsurprisingly really, powerhouse influencing people, companies, brands and the mass media in general. So I think they are a great example to look to for those who are doing digital right. Now I'm going to ask you two key questions for our listeners, as we do every week now. Firstly, what is your key takeaway from today's podcast? And secondly, what will you be watching closely in the coming weeks? I'm going to start off with you, Charlotte. My key takeaway is, um, I think, a confidence issue. And I think that relates to marketing in general, and I think it relates to these new media models. It's a question of believing in what you're doing. So whether that's a marketer in a business talking to their CFO or whether that's um, someone like Positive News coming up with a, like a brand new way um, of sustaining an online and quarterly magazine um, proposition. Believing in what you're doing, being confident um, and kind of finding a way that works, works for you. Um, so confidence is my key takeaway. Something I'll be watching in the coming weeks is Brexit. <laughs> Can't get away from it. What is going to happen? Um, what does it mean for businesses? What does it mean for consumers? Um, will this hundred million pound advertising campaign get ready for Brexit make any difference at all? Um, will Brexit even happen? Um, yeah, it's the only thing I can really think about at the moment. I don't think you're alone in that <laughs> at all. And Russell, what about you? Well, I suppose Brexit as well would be the thing that I'm looking at for in the next couple of weeks. We've heard so much in, well for, well, for three years now about its impact on economic confidence, to use that word again, uh, and the uncertainty uh, that stemmed from, well, not having a clue what the hell happens next. So will that mean that marketing budgets will increase or are we in a sort of permanent state of uncertain paralysis in marketing and has the game changed forever to finish on an existential question there and uh, again if to be really boring I suppose my key takeaway is this question of marketers changing the conversation or needing to change the conversation by perhaps having more faith in their own abilities and more confidence in what they do and the value that that offers a business to flag something up that we haven't talked about today but that we've recently done on marketing week we launched the marketing week top 100 which was a look at the most effective marketers in the uk according to 10 vertical sector groupings and what that whole process taught me is that there are some amazing marketers out there it just means that despite my slightly negative tone about what the challenges lie ahead or the challenges that lie ahead for marketers in changing that conversation there's plenty of people out there who are already doing it already living it and others can be inspired by i guess my key takeaway would be confidence the same as both of you but i also thought that those media models are really interesting i think we so often have the conversation about the media's failing what's going to happen and i think it's really interesting to have a conversation about what's doing well or at least what people are trying differently. And um, something I'm looking forward to in the coming weeks or watching closely is the holiday market in general, which 
yes, has something to a lot to do with Brexit and how they're going to handle it. It's also September, so a lot of new campaigns are coming out. I also just think there's a lot of issues at the moment, and I'm curious to see how the industry and marketers will respond to it. You know, you've got Thomas Cook, who's not doing very well, but you've, and Brexit, but you've also kind of got carbon offsetting and things like that. And I just think it's an interesting time for that industry, so I'll be watching that. So we hope you enjoyed this week's Marketing Week Explores. We're keen to hear your opinions about the podcast, so please do tweet us at Marketing Week Ed. And as ever, if you want to read the content we've been discussing or get more of the best marketing news and insight, go to our website, marketingweek.com. That just leaves me to thank you, Russell, and Charlotte, and you for listening.